One day in November 2018, the 14th, I think, I left my office to walk home early because the smoke from outside was being blown into my building by the HVAC system. I was wearing an N95 mask for the first time in my life, which seems quaint now. My walk took me uphill across the UC Berkeley campus, and as I looked ahead through the smoke, I remember the strangeness of seeing the tower of the Campanile silhouetted against a yellow-gray sky. Bits of ash were falling like snow flurries, and I remember very clearly wondering, what would it be like for this to feel normal? Six days earlier, 160 miles to the northeast, the town of Paradise, California, had burned to the ground. 86 people had died, and the campfire was still going. The full extent of the damage was still unknown. While I was experiencing the worst air quality to date in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was already clear that people in the Sierra foothills were in the middle of a catastrophe of much greater magnitude. Because of the natural environment, government policies, and water engineering projects in California, things that happen in the Sierras reverberate throughout the state, but people in different places feel them in markedly different ways. This episode explores the ways climate change is projected to affect day-to-day life for people in the Sierra Nevada region and beyond. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm Shane Carter. In California's fourth climate change assessment, the Sierra Nevada region is huge, extending along the eastern edge of the state from the Oregon border all the way down to Death Valley in the southeast. It includes 14 entire counties, plus the eastern parts of four others. The discovery of gold here in the mid-1800s led to many thousands of people pouring into the region. But today, only 3% of it is cities or agricultural areas. The remaining 97% is grasslands, shrublands, forests, and, in the south, high desert. This is a place of extremes. The Modoc Plateau, at the north end of the region, sits at 10,000 feet above sea level. From there, the Sierra Nevada mountains extend southward. Death Valley, at the southeast edge of the region, is 280 feet below sea level and holds the record for the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth back in 1913, It was 134 degrees Fahrenheit, or 56.6 degrees Celsius. Fire looms large for the people who live in this part of the state. In 2021, fire burned 2.57 million acres in California, and more than half of that was in or right next to the Sierra Nevada region. Four young people spoke with me to help me understand how climate change is likely to affect day-to-day life in the Sierra Nevada. We're going to start on the north end of gold country. My name is Antonino Conte. I am 17 years old, and I live in Penn Valley, California. I asked everyone I interviewed to tell me about themselves. Antonino, or Nino, described himself as a varsity soccer player and an AP student. I like things like D&D and uh, Magic the Gathering, and I play games like Total War. He lives in the foothills of the Sierra. There are oaks, ponderosa pines, and shrubs, but he isn't in the deep forest. Um, It's more ranching, like in my neighborhood, so there's a lot of cattle, but other than that, it's kind of spread out. I I live kind of like in the middle of four smaller ranches, so there's about 10 to 15 acres between each house. If you go more into town, it's kind of like a small town where, you know, there's smaller hotels and stuff. You know, people are living close to each other, but it's very rural. 20 minutes to the east, heading toward the mountains, was home to a second high school student. Uh, My name is Evelyn. I just turned 17 years old, and I live right next to downtown Nevada City. Evelyn was finishing her junior year when I spoke with her. I do a lot at the high school. I'm on the varsity water polo team, and I also do policy debate, which is an activity where you kind of you travel nationwide and you debate about U.S. foreign policy and just different things about the government and also various theories. 
This means a huge amount of time digging deep into the details of current events, researching and talking with other people about the possible consequences of all kinds of policies. Each year in policy debate, we have a resolution, which is kind of just a really broad topic. And one side will propose a policy that the government should do in relation to that topic, and the other side will debate against that. So it's been a couple of years since we've had a policy directly related to climate change. But what happens is you get to climate change impacts really quickly. They might be debating immigration or trade bills, but Evelyn told me it's pretty easy to show that some policies anyway will make climate change worse. And if she could make that connection, it's often a winning argument against that policy. The debate experience changed her worldview. I was not a political person until I started doing this like freshman year. And I think I've become more and more liberal with like every debate tournament that I've gone to. But when you do more reading and more research about climate change, I think you just believe it's real more. I asked Evelyn what might surprise an outsider who had never been to her part of the state. I think really the people who live here stand out. I think we are, as last time I checked, we're the fourth whitest county in California and maybe the oldest. But almost everyone who lives here is like, either a huge hippie or super Republican. So it's kind of a weird environment. Nino sees a connection between people's political outlook and the rural environment. In my area, there's definitely more of a independence kind of thing, you know, as far as whether or not government should be involved. Simply because like, if you live in the urban area, you have public transit and all those kinds of things to where you're used to the government providing certain things. Whereas out in this area, there's not much of that. And so you're more used to the government leaving you alone for the most part. If your image of California is the sprawl of Los Angeles, San Francisco trolley cars, or even the wide, flat farmlands of the Central Valley, well, add something else to those mental pictures. Evelyn's hometown, Nevada City, is pretty much a textbook version of a quaint former mining town. It's in like the trees, the things you see around. It's like an old mining town. And it's just, it's very small, and that's not really what you picture when you think of California. I personally live right on Deer Creek, which means I can look out my window and, like, see a river, or I can see lots of trees around. Through her debate experience, Evelyn gained a deep understanding of how climate change would affect the world globally, in the Arctic, the tropics, different agricultural areas. I'm really not sure how it would affect my particular area, actually. I don't, because we're not a very like agricultural based area big probably the biggest impact would it wouldn't be as pretty i don't know <laughs> i also asked nino what he thought i'm guessing there'd be you know, some migration away from the coasts um, i don't know if the like severe impacts of it would necessarily be in the, the next 40 years or even my lifetime but it's definitely something that will become more of a problem and you know the coast will get more and more swallowed up by water as the ice caps melt. Even the temperature warming up two or three degrees Celsius isn't going to have a super huge impact uh, quickly, but it's definitely something that we need to address before it becomes a huge problem. You often hear about climate change in global terms like this, ice caps melting, sea levels rising, temperatures rising. The state climate change assessments outline more localized projections, and with that information, we can develop a better sense of how our lives will change locally. We'll come back to the question of what kind of effect that temperature increase is projected to have in the Sierras, but first, let's take a detour. If we want to prevent the worst effects of climate change, we need to transition away from fossil fuel-based energy as quickly as possible. Nino is interested in nuclear engineering as a solution to this energy problem. Freshman year, I was lucky enough to be able to go visit my uncle in France, and he like let me tour his laboratory. Um, now that they're working on reactors that will actually um, burn away uh, nuclear waste, I saw it much more as a sustainable source of energy, especially if they can actually develop something like that, because it is the cleanest way that's just it has nuclear waste, which is if they can get rid of it, then it basically has very few downsides. Nuclear scientists are working on methods to reduce both how much waste reactors produce and how long that waste is dangerously radioactive. 
According to a 2019 report from the International Atomic Energy Agency, the necessary waste-related technologies are, quote, in the conceptual stage. That's what Nino's interested in working on. And although there is a lot of interesting research being done, we do not currently have the ability to build that sort of reactor. What we do have, however, is 250,000 metric tons of nuclear waste around the world, 90,000 of that in the United States. Different components of the waste remain deadly for different periods of time, from 1,000 years to 250,000 years. And to put that in perspective, 250,000 years ago, humans had not yet migrated out of Africa to populate the rest of the Earth. We still don't have a storage method that will keep the waste safely contained for a thousand years, never mind a quarter million. And this still unsolved mess is a big part of why people don't trust promises about new nuclear technologies. Meanwhile, power companies in many parts of the world are shutting down their nuclear plants, not building new ones. Other forms of energy are currently less expensive. New nuclear technology has been slow to develop, and the companies that build the plants have hit financial trouble. Um, like something, one of the things that's been happening in the U.S. that I disagree with would be that um, they're shutting down nuclear reactors, and like sh- maybe not building new ones. You know, I, I would say yes, but you know, meeting in the middle, maybe not be- building new ones, but shutting them down is something that I see as definitely the wrong move. Some environmentalists do support maintaining old plants and creating new ones as part of our new decarbonized energy infrastructure. Nuclear plants provide the consistent issue of amounts of electricity around the clock, regardless of whether the sun is shining in or the wind is blowing. From the most and that reliability is important because we need engineers to are still working on effective 40 ways to 60 percent produced by wind and solar. And that is the same year when researchers think they might be ready to build the first of these new-style nuclear plants. The things we do in the eight years between now and then will probably change our calculus for evaluating the role of nuclear power. This brings us back to the question of average global temperature. If all countries keep their current promises, global average temperatures are projected to reach about plus 1.9 degrees Celsius around 2050, or, to put that in personal terms, when Nino and Evelyn are about my age, in their late 40s. Then, if all goes well, projections suggest temperatures will be pulled back down to plus 1.8 degrees Celsius by 2100. But those are promises. They haven't actually been turned into policies yet. If we just continue with our current policies around the world, climate models suggest that we'll hit plus 2.6 or 2.7 degrees Celsius by 2100, and that's in the range that Nino mentioned. So what would that mean for people living in the Sierra Nevada region? I talked about this with Nancy Freitas, my collaborator on this podcast. She's a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. Nancy listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them. I brought my perspective from teaching history and social studies, and she brought a scientist's view and answered questions that came up. If you want to learn more about Nancy and her work, you should listen to the first episode, What is Climate Change? We've seen about, you know, one degree Celsius of change um, in global average temperature in the past century, give or take a few decades. And the effects that we are seeing from one degree of change are massive. And I think it's important to remember that one degree of average global change does not translate to one degree of temperature increase on the ground where you live. Because it's a global average, some places heat up more. And so we know that by the end of the century, under the higher warming scenarios that are being projected for California, a few degrees of global temperature increase on average translate to up to about 10 degrees um, of temperature increase. To clarify, she means average temperature in the Sierra region is projected to increase between 6 and almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100. In the better future scenarios, global temperatures will increase until just after the middle of the century and then either level off or come back down a bit. So, if Nino and Evelyn still live in the area in 2060, that means they would be experiencing temperatures an average of six degrees warmer than they are now. 
And I want to remind you that average temperature is not what you experience on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't tell you about variations from place to place within a region or from day to day. If your Sierra town hit a high of 105 every day this week, and my Sierra town hit a high of 20 degrees, the average temperature for the two towns that week was a perfectly manageable 62.5 degrees. But as you know, in real life, you would have been sweating in shorts and a t-shirt while I was bundled up in a parka and a hat. The same thing is true when the temperature swings between extremes in a single location. The average may sound mild, but your day-to-day experience could still include extremes. In this case, although the exact details differ from one part of the region to another, the projected increase in average temperature means warmer nights, hotter and more frequent summer heat waves, and warmer winter temperatures. It may sound counterintuitive, but the greater temperature increases will actually be at the higher elevations. How will that affect the environment? Well, the list is long, but I'm going to focus on two interconnected areas of change, wildfire and water. We'll start with fire. As you probably know, if you've been watching the news, climate change is already increasing wildfire across many parts of California, but the issue is especially acute in the Sierra Nevada region. Nino and Evelyn were both very familiar with wildfire effects. For example, the year before we spoke, Nino's family evacuated because of a nearby fire. It was fairly small, but they couldn't take chances. To get into my house, there's this really long road, and it's like the only way in and in or out of the area of my house. So we kind of got out of there quickly in case it got big. In other cases, the fires were more distant, but the smoke affected life in his community. There was the big one in Yosemite, and that one we had to like cancel practices and stuff. Um, eighth grade year, I think it was was the bull fire. May have been um, that was made us have to cancel school a couple of days because the smoke was so bad. Nino lives in a valley where smoke from fires accumulates, but it's a problem across the region. How do you think school might be different for a kid 20 or 30 years from now in your town if fire season has extended by a couple of months and there are more fires? I would assume that you would have a much longer um, break during fire season um, because can't really send people home because there's fires in our area that happen. And so they'd have to continue, continually evacuate. I, I would assume much more of it would be online schooling uh, because if you have a phone, you can pretty much do that anywhere. I, I, would, I would also assume that because of smoke, they would find a way to keep students inside as much as possible instead of having them walk around. Evelyn told me that fire was actually her introduction to the topic of climate change. I remember first learning about it causing fires, probably in like sixth grade when I like went out onto the blacktop at middle school and like everything was covered in smoke. Like we had a lot of discussions about that in class. The campfire that burned the town of Paradise that I mentioned at the start of the show That happened during Evelyn's sophomore year of school, and Paradise is only about 75 miles from Nevada City. Uh, Many people died. There were so many people that I was friends with that had people from Paradise come and like stay in their homes because they didn't have a place to live. In this region, fire is always there in the background. You know, we've grown up with having to have like a go bag and having to have a place where you meet like in your driveway in the event of a fire. Like we've run through drills in schools, like what happens if your house starts burning down? How do you feel like that would affect your town or a person growing up in 20 years if there are more fires and a longer fire season? Life would be really different. I think I think homes would have to be start being built differently. I think we would have to have more like uh planned cutting down of trees. Like I said earlier, I lived down by the creek. We had to have a ton of trees cut down down there earlier this year for fear of forest fires. I think the way people work and go to school would change because there are some instances where you just can't be outside in the smoke, like it's bad for your respiratory health. As many of us in California know, 
Power outages, hot, windy weather, and fires go together now. Heat causes electrical lines to stretch, increasing the likelihood that they'll touch vegetation and spark fires or fail for other reasons. Wind exacerbates this problem, then spreads any fires that do start. For that reason, power companies have begun public safety power shutoffs where they preemptively shut off power under certain weather conditions to try to prevent fires. Evelyn estimated that the power was out 10 to 14 days straight in the fall before we spoke. Her family has a generator, but plenty of people don't. It's difficult. Most people, I think, would go to friends' houses. I know we cleared out half of our freezer so that our neighbors could put their stuff in our fridge and freezer. Um, People that were on city water still had water supplies, but people who were on well systems or spring water, which is a ton of people in Nevada City, would have to like go to friends' houses to shower. This isn't just a problem for households. Government agencies also have to find ways to manage the power shutoffs. The, like the police department, they you like uh, Sierra College had a camp has a campus up here, and they had internet and in the police department set up on that campus. Nino and Evelyn make clear that wildfire means everything from loss of life and loss of homes and businesses to school and work closures and canceled sports practices. Constant fire danger also means repeated power shutoffs with all the effects you just heard, plus additional dangers for people who need electricity for medical reasons. And then there are the unexpected fire and power-related effects that just make life a little bit worse. The filter system to the school's pool got cut out, and it wasn't fixed until March. So we missed the first half of the swim season and most of the water polo season. Here's Nancy again. These effects, they're, they're layered um, and they are starting to overlap. Um, and so fire effects have health effects. They also have economic effects. And it's not just, um, or not, you know, not just, but like people's houses burning down or towns being destroyed, but it's also insurance companies pulling out of of certain areas and not being willing to insure houses in those areas, you know, which, which further um, increases inequality. We're also talking about damage to infrastructure, like what was seen with the Paradise Fires, where, you know, water pipes and water infrastructure are damaged by the direct effects of the fire, but then there is leaching of chemicals into the water system in concentrations that far, far exceed what is considered okay in our water, and that those effects last way beyond the year that the fire rips through during, or even the the few days that the fire comes through during. 275 miles to the southeast, on the other side of the mountains in the Owens Valley, wildfire is also a concern. This high desert region is the ancestral land of the Paiute Shoshone. Uh, Brooke Spratt. Manuhu Inunyane Shane Carter. Uh, I'm from the Big Pine Paiute tribe. I'm Paiute Shoshone, and I'm 16 years old. Did I do okay with my greeting? Oh, yeah, you did good. Pretty good for a beginner. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're very kind. Any mistakes in pronunciation there are mine. Brooke was a very encouraging teacher. Brooke lives on the Big Pine Reservation, which is one of five Paiute Shoshone reservations in the Owens Valley. This is a completely different environment than the Sierra foothills where Nino and Evelyn live. Well, Big Pine is a very small town. Um, but the first thing I see when I walk out my front door is I see the, the Sierra Mountains. So I see those and I see the beautiful mountains. I see sometimes the white mountaintops if it's, like, if it's snowed before. Fifteen miles up the road from Big Pine, still in the Owens Valley, is the town of Bishop. Uh, my name is... Joseph Redell. I am 16 years old, and I live in Bishop, California. I'm an athlete. I play three sports, and also I'm a scholar student as well. Uh, I was my class president this year. What kind of stuff do you and your friends there do for 
fun, like to entertain yourselves? Um, around here, we got the huge mountains, so we would love to go hike and go fish most of the time. Um, we'd also like, we um, hunt a lot. We would like to go fire our firearms every now and then, but um, most of the time, we, all, we would always go hiking. We'd go and um, go and sightsee, watch the stars at night. Unlike Brooke, Joseph wasn't born in the valley. He told me he spent his early childhood in South Dakota. But like everyone who has lived in the Sierra region for any length of time, he has also experienced the effects of wildfire. And then so we do see a lot of smoke coming over the mountain. And then it will affect it here. There was one time where we could not actually play a game because the air was filled up with smoke and it was terrible. You, you know, could not see the mountains at all. And the, and the sun was all orange and everything. Brooke had a closer encounter with fire. It was around my eighth birthday. Um, I was having a little birthday party, and there was a huge fire near the crater volcano here that broke out, and it was really close to the reservation. And we all had to evacuate. And I remember, I was I was scared. I'm I was scared to lose my house, to lose to lose everything. Several of the young people I interviewed across the state had evacuated their homes as fire rapidly approached. All of them remembered the frenzied process of getting out the door. Yeah, that's the that's the hardest decision is when you have to pack that bag and everything just seems value, valuable to you at that one point and you just don't know what to take and you're kind of in a panic mode of what you want to grab. And me when I was younger it was the hardest thing to choose and I just sat there and I'd cry and I'd cry and I'd cry because I didn't know what I wanted to take it was it was scary and I remember hearing my 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 dad or my grandma telling me hurry up grab your stuff we gotta go we gotta go and they had to come in here and don't just grab my bag and like you have to leave it we gotta go or sometimes we'd or we'd have our bags packed just in case we had to evacuate and we'd stay up all night waiting to hear if we had to leave or not and I just remember staying up and crying and sometimes to the point I just I'd fall asleep on my suitcases and I wake up and then they tell me the fire got put out or the fire is under control and just that relief I had it was great but sometimes it sucks to think about it. sometimes kids don't get that relief it's like we don't have a place to live anymore when I heard that like a couple of my friends' houses burned down uh, in a fire that was down here um, maybe 10 years ago. And I remember one of my friends coming into class like a couple days afterwards and uh, hearing that they didn't have a house to live in anymore and they had to leave. Accounts of wildfire experiences remind us that when we think about the effects of climate change, we obviously have to consider things like the loss of life and property. But we also need to think about the emotional and the physical effects communities and individuals experience. I'm a kid that I have asthma, I've grown up with asthma and everything else. And so like when we had those big California fires um, a couple years ago and the smoke was being dragged up here, it was I was working at the time. And so I was like really moving around, huffing and puffing and not having the, the oxygen that I needed as well because it's so like full of just smoke and it made it hard to breathe. I remember having to take so many breaks to, you know, use my inhaler or sometimes I had to leave work early because I couldn't breathe and I had the worst chest pain. The story of how we got to this point is one of human behavior intersecting with the environment. Our decisions affect the landscape and then those changes to the landscape have consequences for us. In the American imagination, the Sierra Nevada region is a slice of untouched nature. In 1912, John Muir, the naturalist, wrote a book called The Yosemite. I want to read a brief passage. He wrote, Not even in the shadiest nook will you find any rank, untidy weeds or unwholesome darkness. In the north sides of ridges, the boles, that is, the tree trunks, are more slender, and the ground is mostly occupied by an underbrush of hazel, Ceanothus, and flowering dogwood, but not so densely as to prevent the traveler from sauntering where he will. While the crowning branches are never impenetrable to the rays of the sun, and never so interblended as to lose their individuality. 
But here's the thing. This landscape was not natural. On the contrary, it was very much the creation of the indigenous peoples who lived in the region for more than 13,000 years. In some parts of the world, settled agriculturalists fed themselves by intensively cultivating small plots of land and keeping domesticated animals. Picture ancient Egypt and almost all the other kingdoms and empires you've ever heard about. But in other places, like most of what is now California, people solved the food problem in a different way. Instead of intensively modifying small plots of land, they tended huge tracts in ways that encouraged certain plants and animals to flourish, thus providing themselves with ready sources of food. Same goal, different method. And this tending is why, in 1912, John Muir still saw lots of pinyon nut-producing pine trees, but not a whole lot of undergrowth impeding his walk through the forest. In photographs from his time, the landscape looks radically different than it does today. And for thousands of years, fire was the primary tool Native Americans used to tend the land. Each year, they used low-intensity fire to burn more than 4 million acres of forest undergrowth, meadows, and grasslands. When U.S. settlers claimed control of California in 1846, the state was still home to about 150,000 indigenous people. More than 20 tribes lived in the area the state now defines as the Sierra Nevada region. Over the next 35 years, U.S. settlers and the California government conducted a genocide against them. It began in the ancestral lands of the Nisenan, where Nino and Evelyn live today, what settlers called gold country. Violence expanded across the state, but was especially extreme in the Sierra region. From the Modoc in the north to the Paiute Shoshone in the south, native communities were decimated. By the time of the 1880 census, there were only 16,277 indigenous Californians in the state. Rather than increasing, their population had declined by more than 90% in about 30 years. As settlers, state government, and federal government took control of the land, they brought new ways of managing it. Then, beginning around the turn of the 20th century, the U.S. Forest Service began a policy of fire suppression, which, among other things, outlawed native burning practices. The logging industry also changed the landscape by harvesting the biggest trees from many California forests, leaving smaller trees and underbrush to spring up. After almost a century of fire suppression came the drought of 2012. Soil across the state became exceptionally dry, weakening trees, and making them susceptible to bark beetle infestations. In the five drought years, 150 million trees died and turned into vast acres of standing firewood, surrounded by extremely dry underbrush. At the wildland-urban interface, the area where town meets undeveloped land, homes and businesses are particularly vulnerable. The current problem sounds massive, it is, and the dangers are exacerbated by climate change. But just as human actions and government policies led us to this point, our actions and policies can also improve the situation moving forward. People in tribal, local, state, and the federal government are working on this problem, including by bringing intentional fire back to the landscape. You can also see climate change intersecting with decisions we've made when it comes to the second major issue in the Sierra Nevada, water. Here's Nancy again. From the Sierra Nevada Climate Assessment Report, we learn that three quarters of California's water comes from the Sierra Nevadas. And a lot of that is in the form of snowpack that you know, snow falls or precipitation falls in the Sierras over the winter season and freezes and then releases slowly down into the valleys and into areas where humans collect it and then distribute it across the state. But 
What we also read is that 60 to 90% of that snowpack is going to be lost within the century. And, and so that has a lot of implications for how we manage water in the state. When snow falls at high elevations in the Sierra Mountains, it accumulates on the ground throughout the winter. That's the snowpack. Then melts slowly through the spring and summer, keeping local soils moist and filling rivers and streams. State water engineers manage a system of almost 1,500 dams to hold that river water, which then gets released and channeled across the state. They have to maintain a careful balance. If reservoirs fill too much, dams can fail. But if they release the water too soon, the state won't have enough for the dry months. Hydroelectric plants are also part of this system. They provide 15% of all the electricity produced in the state, and they also depend on the steady flow of water in rivers and at dams. But if we trace this back to the beginning, our whole statewide water system depends on the slow melt of water out of the snowpack. And so there, there are a few reasons why snowpack uh, will decrease in that quantity. One is that less precipitation is going to fall as snow. So it might fall as rain, but it won't necessarily fall as snow because the temperature will be higher. And so in snowpack that does fall might not accumulate on the ground in the same way, or it might not stay on the ground as long, you know, because, because it is warmer and because the more snow you have, the more reflective that ground surface is. So the cooler it can be, um, which allows, you know, for a cooling of the environment and more snow accumulation. So I want to I want to pause there for a second though because I think that's really interesting because the one thing everybody seems to know is about the polar caps melting. And what you're saying there with more snow accumulation means more space that's white that's reflecting heat is that the thing that students think about and know about happening in the poles is actually also happening on a smaller scale in the mountains in California. And we know that areas that lose snow are less reflective and therefore um, can heat up and, you know, absorb, absorb more solar radiation, you know, which prevents more of that snow accumulation. So it's kind of this feedback effect. Now, this is obviously a serious problem for California as a whole because of our water system. But it's also going to have a unique impact on people living within the Sierra region. Bigger storms with precipitation that falls as rain rather than snow means an increased danger of flooding in the winter months. Then, without snowpack to slowly release water throughout the spring and summer, soils will dry out like they did in the last drought. And again, this increases the danger of both bark beetle infestation and wildfire. If we don't significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it's likely that we will have no snowpack at all below 6,000 feet of elevation, and that would affect people's livelihoods. That would probably have the biggest impact on Truckee Tahoe. That region, their economies depend hugely on like tourism in the winter, like um, ski resorts, snowboarding, sledding, things like that. The base elevation of ski resorts in the Truckee area is around 6,500 feet, too close for comfort for a business that depends on a deep layer of snow. These changes to the climate will affect the economy in the region. In the summer, smoke from wildfires will reduce business to outdoor tourist destinations. In the winter, changes in precipitation patterns will do the same to ski resorts. The people who work at the resorts, the local shops, the hotels, and restaurants then face an uncertain job future. Local businesses are going to need both money and creativity to adapt. Precipitation changes will also affect water for homes and businesses in the area. In many parts of the Sierra, households get water from private wells or from very small city systems. And just as in the San Joaquin Valley region, some people in this area saw their wells run dry during the recent drought, and they also did not have the funds to dig deeper wells. This issue is especially complicated because of the relationship between the Sierras and the other parts of the state. When people in the Central Valley, and people like me who live in coastal cities, debate how to manage the water supply, we forget sometimes that we're talking about making changes in someone else's backyard. 
it's very dry here too because uh well uh most of LA's water comes from here in one telling of it the story of Los Angeles's water supply begins around 1905 when agents from the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power LADWP began quietly buying up land from ranchers and a small number of Paiute Shoshone landholders in the Owens Valley. They did this to acquire water rights to basically all the water in the Owens River. And the city then funded an aqueduct to channel water from the Owens River Valley 230 miles away, all the way to Los Angeles. During a drought in the 1920s, this turned into an outright conflict between L.A. and local ranchers, and there are still tensions and lawsuits between the two places. It is fair to say that without the Owens River, Los Angeles as we know it today would not exist. This is some important context for understanding Joseph and Brooks' experiences of the drought. Uh, here, um, it was not good at all because um, the lakes here are starting to dry up pretty bad here. The lakes are just starting to turn into dust, and then that dust will turn into, you know, just toxic fumes in there, which could, you know, make the air more harder to breathe because it's just dust flying everywhere in the wind. Joseph also saw the effects of the drought when he was hunting. It'll be harder to spot deer or find any deer because that means that they would have pushed back farther into the mountain in search of more food and water. And the same thing goes with fish as well, but it's not as much as the same as like deer or like, you know, elk or moose. It was so dry. Um, it was hard to grow things here. And it was it was a really rough few years for us. And that was like kind of like one of the main things that really, when my brother started talking about it, really caught my attention. And him showing his frustration about it, not really understanding what it was, but even just asking questions about it. You know, because L.A. needed water, they had to take all of our water, so it limited our water resources. The diversion of the Owens River to Los Angeles caused the Owens Lake to almost completely dry up. Today, wind picks up dust from the dry lake bed, and it creates a serious health hazard in town. The conflict between the Owens Valley ranchers and LADWP is actually the middle of the story, though, not the beginning. In 1850, between 1 and 2,000 Paiute Shoshone people lived in the Owens Valley. The Owens River originates as snowmelt in the Sierra Mountains and flows down to the valley floor, where it used to feed a series of wetlands and lakes. Brooks' ancestors built irrigation ditches to divert the water to various parts of the valley, ensuring themselves plentiful plants and animals to eat. Then... In the late 1850s, miners discovered gold near Mono Lake at the far north end of the Owens River Valley. Thousands of prospectors rushed in, and then ranchers followed them to supply the mining towns with food. They diverted water for their own use and then also grazed their cattle on lands the Paiute Shoshone people were tending for their own food. Not surprisingly, this led to conflict. It's called the Owens Valley War, but that implies a sort of equality in the conflict, which isn't true. According to Benjamin Madley's book, An American Genocide, between 1861 and 65, vigilante settlers and U.S. soldiers carried out massacres, broke treaties, and forced almost 1,000 Paiute Shoshone people to march to Fort Tejon, over 300 miles away. Many of them died. When the survivors made their way back into the valley, they faced more violence, including the massacre of a hundred men, women, and children at Owens Lake. By the 1870s, most of the surviving Paiute Shoshone people were working for ranchers back in the valley. The reservations that exist today, like the one where Brooke lives, are the result of a 1937 deal involving LADWP, the federal government, and the Paiute Shoshone people. The amount of Owens River water allocated to the reservations has changed over time, but LADWP still owns the rights to the water itself. That's the longer historical context, and it's at the forefront of Brooke's mind when she imagines the future in Big Pine. It'll probably be a lot dustier because it's so dry that all the stuff that the wind picks up in the air, it just becomes so 
toxic and hard to breathe from that it's not really it wouldn't really be considered a safe place to live anymore wow that's a pretty grim uh projection for your hometown well over the years i've noticed uh, how dry and you know it has gotten because of how much water is being taken from us or how much water is being dried out one of the the kind of the main trees and what we say is the main reason why big pine got its name um He's so dry, he's literally just, he's dead. Brooke said the tree always marked home for her. During like Christmas time, we go, they have like lights set up around him and they light him up. Uh, we have hot cocoa, donuts, we meet Santa, the kids meet Santa and everything. And everyone just gathers. It's like a big gathering that our whole town usually does every year. And it's so, it's so great. It's kind of crazy in how much just like, uh, just a plant or something that's not human can have such a big effect on just a small town. A few months after Brooke and I spoke, the tree was cut down. This made me think about the complex ways our traditions are connected to our environment. The tree that Brooke grew up with wasn't actually the one the town was named for. According to a local paper, that was an earlier tree, which I imagine was enjoyed and then lost by an earlier generation. It's not just the natural world. We make traditions around our built environment, too, even when we have a complicated relationship to it. It had been over 100 every day the week I spoke with Brooke, and keep in mind, climate scientists project more heat waves in the future. We have, like, the canal, which is the water that the DWP takes and sends to L.A., so we go swim in that. Um, <laughs> we go swim in L.A.'s water. Uh, we have like the Bishop public pool, but mostly in Bitcoin, we don't have anything like that. So kids just go jump in the canal or jump in the river. We know that the water has to be treated. So we're like, okay, whatever. We're like, haha, you kind of drink our pee water or something like that. <laughs> so like, we'll like laugh around about it. I think these complicated everyday experiences are both funny and tragic all at the same time. They are what I think about when I imagine how climate change will alter life over the coming decades. Reading the state climate assessments makes me think about that walk across campus and the smoke and the ash, and I try to imagine the world with future eyes. What will seem normal then? Just before we recorded our discussion, Nancy had taken a backpacking trip in the Sierras. When, when you sent me the photograph of it, I was thinking, everything you're seeing will be touched by climate change. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I just, I didn't know whether there was anything when you were actually on the trip that you looked at and had that like, hmm, I might never see this again thought. Yeah, I, that actually did happen. One was we were walking through meadows and into forested areas. You know, both are beautiful, super important ecosystems for these areas. And something that I kept thinking about with that was how many of these forests if they get destroyed in a fire, are going to look like meadow ecosystems when they come back. Like, how long, if this forest gets wiped out, is it going to take for that, you know, the regeneration of the forest to happen in a series of successive steps? And will it have time to regenerate in the same way that it currently exists if there's this complicating factor of climate change that's happening in that area? Because you know, we're expecting to see shifts in, in the ranges of uh, different plant and animal species. Uh, we're expecting to see them move up in elevation. So, you know, if I come back in 2100 and I look at this landscape and several massive fires have moved through this area and in the years preceding or following them that maybe drought or high heat has additionally impacted them, will they even be here? Like that was definitely something that I was thinking about. And, you know, forests will exist in the Sierras, but will they exist where they currently are with the same species that they currently have? You know, signs are pointing to probably not. Changing temperatures, more wildfire, changing precipitation, these add up to changing ecosystems. The ranges where plants and animals can survive will change, but they won't all change at the same rate or in the same way. So a bird species might shift to a higher elevation, but the plants and insects it depends on could move differently. We can improve the situation by lowering emissions, 
and also by improving plants and animals' chances of adapting. And so some of the the things that have been proposed have been making sure that habitats are connected to allow for animals to move from one place to another. You mean physically, like to maintain corridors so that if you build new buildings, you make sure that you leave space for animals to literally physically move. Exactly. And, you know, kind of in a similar way, thinking about areas of climate refugia, which are kind of these like little oases of unchanged habitat that may be able to sustain populations of plants and animals as they are moving, or that can exist as new kind of touchdown points for them. But that assumes that those climate refugia are not going to be impacted by climate change as well. Even by 2050 or 2100, young people in the Sierras will be growing up in a very different world than the one that exists there now. But that change does not have to be all bad. We could minimize climate change effects by setting policies that achieve global carbon neutrality by mid-century. We could manage our forests differently. We could conserve more water and adapt our state infrastructure for the changing climate. Life in 2100 could actually be more sustainable and more just than it is today. But the uncertainty about the future is hard. I don't worry about it as much now because, well, uh, I'm still young, so I don't try to think about that stuff as much now. But when I get older, if I do have the choice to have kids or anything, it would affect me because I would start to begin to worry what would their future lives look like. That uncertainty also leaves space for optimism and determination in people's plans for the future. I want to become a photographer for more natural, like the trees or, of course, the mountains. And I kind of just want to use my pictures to like bring more of a voice to show that there is more beauty out there than we really see. And that if we don't, if we take advantage of it in the wrong ways and destroy it, it's not going to be here for long. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, check out the future imperfect resources at calglobaled.org. You'll find links about each of the topics mentioned in this episode. Next show up, the Central Coast. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.